Howdy, gang. Vince here. Uh, there's a movie coming out this weekend that you might have heard of called Killers of the Flower Moon from Martin Scorsese. Uh, and I don't know if you also know this part, but believe it or not, before it was a movie, it was a book by a guy named David Gran. And as luck would have it, I actually interviewed David Gran back in 2017 uh, when the book came out. And I thought with the movie coming out, which I'm about to go see right now, I thought it might, might be a fun time to revisit that interview that we did uh, back in the day. The sound quality is kind of crappy, but I think you, you know, it's not too bad to listen to uh, for an interview. Um, yeah, uh, I don't think we get too spoilery um, in, in, in the interview as far as the movie goes. I know the movie is a little bit different than the book, but, uh, you know, some of the things that you may maybe want to know going into the interview, um, they're the characters in the book. Uh, the book is about sort of this, uh, it's a lot of it is about a sort of wealthy landowner in uh, Oklahoma. And he sort of has this plot to, uh, dispossess the Osage Indians of their, mineral rights because it turned out they are their land actually was on uh the site of a big oil deposit and so they were all making money off of the mineral rights and a lot of people were you know basically systematically knocking them off in order to uh inherit the mineral rights to all the oil that was under there um, one of the characters, the wealthy landowner who is played by Robert De Niro in the movie, uh, his name is William Hale. I don't think we mentioned him by name in the interview. Uh, I think David refers to him uh, the way one of the Osage descendants referred to him uh, as the devil who was in a picture that they had in their museum. They had cropped him out of the picture because uh, they couldn't stand to look at him. Um, in the movie, Leonardo DiCaprio plays Ernest Burkhart, who is actually Hale's nephew and is married to uh, an Osage woman named uh, Molly Burkhart. And uh, yeah, I don't think we mentioned any of them by name in the interview, but uh, good to know going in. And yeah, other than that, hope you enjoy the interview. All right, take care. Um, so can you tell me how you decided on the subject? Sure. Um, oh, okay. Are we recording? I was just blathering <laughs> yeah. on. Yeah, that's right. Oh, okay. Sorry. <laughs> Sounds uh, casual. It's great. Um, so um, uh, I decided on the subject, you know, I heard about it back in uh, uh, 2011, um, and a historian had mentioned it to me, and I had never heard of the story then. I, I didn't know that the Osage had been the wealthiest people per capita in the world because of oil under the land in Oklahoma. And I had not known that they had been mysteriously murdered. And I did not know that it had be, the investigation had become one of the FBI's and one of Jagger Hoover's first major homicide cases. All this was new to me. And I traveled out to the Osage Nation oh, several months after that. And at that point, I wasn't really thinking about a book. I was just trying to learn more about it and see maybe if there was a story to be told. And I visited the um, Osage Nation Museum at the time and noticed on the wall this great panoramic photograph that was taken in 1924, and it showed members of the Osage Nation were white settlers. Um, and it looked very innocent, but there was this portion of the photograph that had been cut out. It looked like someone had taken a scissors to it. And I asked the museum director, 
somebody who would later become a friend, uh, but I was just meeting for the first time what had happened to the picture, and she pointed to that missing panel, and she said it contained a figure so frightening she decided to remove it. <laughs> and she then said the devil was standing right there. And she then went down into the basin and retrieved an image of the missing panel and showed one of the killers of the Osage um, during the 1920s. And the book really grew out of that kind of experience. For me, that was really a turning point and for me trying to understand who that figure was. Um, and it really led me to begin to dig deeper and began a five-year process that would that it would take to write and research the book. Right. And then what was uh, what was like the most modest account of the, the death toll? That's a really good question. So, um, you know, when I read accounts at the time, um, the official death toll was usually listed at uh, more than two dozen. Um, that was kind of the official FBI uh, records. Um, and of course, as one begins to dig deeper, one began to realize that that death toll was, was far too modest and that uh, the number of killings was undoubtedly much higher. I mean, so the basic process was... You know, they would try to <clears throat> try to kill the native for their uh, what was the rights? Uh, head rights. Head rights, right? And then, like, how many how many different plots? Like, were they all connected? Like, how many different uh, plots yeah. to do this? Do you think there were? Yeah, yeah. So, um, so just so let's have a little bit of context. So, um, there were about two thousand or so Osage um, on the tribal roll, officially registered members of the tribe um, in the early 1900s. And each one of them was granted what was called a head right. And a head right was essentially a share in the mineral trust. And a head right could not be bought or sold. It wasn't like surface territory. Um, it couldn't be bought or sold. It could only be inherited. And this led to um, very Baroque, uh, multi-layered plots um, that were kind of played out over years um, in which um, people would come up with ways um, to steal or inherit those plots through murders. And the central theory of the crime and the way it was generally betrayed um, was that there was kind of a singular evil mastermind, the so-called devil in that photograph. Mm -hmm. um, and that was the Bureau, the FBI's working theory about the case. And that he perpetrated, you know, was behind two dozen or so of the murders and had henchmen who assisted him um, in, in, in stealing these head rights and murdering off um, various people to get them. In fact, um, when you do more research and you spend time with the Osage and get evidence that they've collected over the years and you begin to spend time in the archives, you begin to realize that in a way, the, the truth was far more disturbing, which is that while there was a very singular, well, I shouldn't say singular, while there was a very evil figure, mm -hmm. the so-called devil, who did in fact orchestrate a very bloody murder campaign that involved, you know, certainly um, close to those two dozen murders, um, and they were interconnected in many cases, and um, he kind of wove this very elaborate, devious plot. Um, the truth, the really disturbing truth was that this evil really lurked in the heart of many seemingly ordinary settlers, um, often prominent businessmen, um, bankers, uh, lawmen, uh, politicians, who 
conducted similar plots on a smaller scale in which there were deaths in, in, in other cases, often just one death to a plot. Mm-hmm. Um, and it allowed them, in their cases, in many cases, to escape justice and escape the law. Um, and so this really was much more about a story about not who did it, but who didn't do it. And it really is a story about a culture of killing. Right. It's almost like when there's one suicide in an area and it starts a, it's like a weird trend, but with murdering for inheritance. Yes. And to be honest, these crimes, even the singular, you know, that, 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 the, the, the devil, the so-called devil, who was a mastermind of certainly one of the most bloodiest plots, um, the crimes could not have existed. It wasn't just that it was contagious. It was that the corruption and the money was so large, the, 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 the fusing and the combination of greed and avarice um, involved many conspirators so that these plots really couldn't also, not only were there many little plots taking place, none of them really could have taken place without the complicity of many others. Mm -hmm. And so it wasn't like others didn't know about the plots. You had morticians who would cover up the crimes. You know, they wouldn't report, oh, there's a bullet wound in the back of the head. They just quickly bury the body. Um, There would be uh, doctors who might administer poisons. There were press who wouldn't cover the crimes. There were lawmen who didn't investigate the crimes because they were getting paid off, or they were also financially benefiting. Um, and on and on it went. And mm-hmm. so um, th- that's one of the more kind of shocking elements of the story. It, you know, it's much easier. And the, the, the way I had I've written about crime stories in the past, and, you know, my general view of them, and the, it was more the way I kind of grew up with the view that's kind of portrayed in literature, which is, you know, there is a kind of a singular bad person who, who might have accomplices. The law comes in and removes that kind of cancerous force and society returns to normal. And it's much more disturbing and, and, and difficult to contemplate that many people might be perpetrating these crimes. Many seemingly ordinary respected people may be uh, complicit in these crimes. Right. Um, so in terms of narrative, I felt like this really had everything. It, you know, it's kind of it had uh, a timely hook. It was a true crime mystery, and then you get to the end, and you sort of there's another twist that you that you solve. I mean, obviously, you can't get that with every story you investigate. Um, like, how far have you gone with other projects that you ended up scrapping because they, you know, like you couldn't yeah. solve the mystery or if it didn't feel conclusive at the end? Yeah. So. Um... You know, I do a lot of magazine stories, and, and there I try to be pretty I, – I, I do a lot of intensive short-term research often into projects early on um, to get a sense whether they're worth pursuing, if my early impressions about the story seem true, is the story more interesting or less interesting than I originally thought, um, is there a way to tell the story, will the people cooperate, is there documents or whatnot. And there I try to be pretty ruthless about getting rid of stories pretty quickly if I, um, because I only tell a few a year, even when I'm at the New Yorker magazine, whether they're worth pursuing and, 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 and embarking on a, you know, at least a two to three month quest and possibly mm-hmm. longer if it's really deeply investigative. Um, it, with the book, it's it's a much more scarier prospect and a much more difficult prospect because um, you're committing to such a long-term investment of time and energy and resources into one story. And in this case, um, 
you know, it took me a long time to find the right story. I mean, my first book, The Lost City Z, was, came out in 2009. I had a collection of my stories published later in The Devil and Sherlock Holmes, but this was my next really full-length book. And I think that was a reflection of the challenge of really trying to find the right story that I thought was worthy of a book and um, kind of had the breadth and dimensions that I felt like a book really needed. Mm-hmm. Um, and in this case, you know, I did a, about a year preliminary research where I was still working at the magazine at the New Yorker doing other stories while I was just collecting information to see what might exist. Is there really enough underlying documents to tell the story? I certainly wanted to tell it after I visited the museum, but I needed to figure out, you know, this is a piece of history and what records existed. And that involved a process of doing FOIA requests and uh, Freedom Information Act requests mm-hmm. and tracking down descendants of the murderers and the victims to see what documents they might have. And then after a year, I kind of committed to the process. Um, and what I had obtained at that point was really just a fraction of what I would need. But it was enough to at least tell me, okay, I'm, I'm, I'm willing to kind of take the plunge. And then I'll, I probably took me another year to really feel like, okay, I think this is yeah. a book. Um, How many... But it, uh... it, that's a, yeah. So, uh, like how many how many different research projects do you tend to have going on at any given time? Well, when I'm doing the magazine stuff, when, once I settle into a story, I'm somewhat mono focused. I to my own detriment. I mean, I wish I could juggle more. Mm-hmm. Um, I look for story ideas the whole time, and I'll clip them or rip out newspaper articles or email myself thoughts, and, and then I'll. But I, I won't focus on them. And then when I finish a project, I will go back and look at them. I mean, for, before I began the book, I certainly was working at the New Yorker because at that point I really was just collecting documents to see what existed. Um, once I kind of settle into a process, I'm pretty mono-focused. I wish I had a brain that could <laughs> was more adept and <laughs> yeah. to juggle multiple thoughts. I find it very difficult to do that. I wish I was better at it. I'm always impressed by people who can do that. Right. Um do you have a preference for writing about the living or the dead? It feels like this <laughs> felt like it was kind of in between, and there seems like a different set of challenges. Yeah, it's a, it's a good question. So, you know, I certainly began writing. I mean, I studied history in college, and so I've always, you know, read a lot of history and been deeply interested in history. But beginning as my career as a, as a reporter, you know, you, you inevitably cover things with news pegs and contemporaneous events and, um, and, and the living. And, um, and it, as I got deeper though, into narrative reporting, I began to become less consumed with the idea that a story needs to have a momentary news peg. Mm-hmm. And that if a story is important, worthy, fascinating, um, that it has real stakes. It doesn't matter exactly when or where it took place. And, um, and so that has led me into historical narratives. Um, you know, I think the lost city of Z was in some ways doing that book was the beginning of that because it had a part of the book is told in the present with my own journey into the Amazon, and uh, half the book is historical and researching the story of this explorer who disappeared in the Amazon. Um, and I think, you know, it probably gave me more confidence to do this kind of thing. So I, I like the freedom of, of, of seeing a story that is worth being told and not feeling that it has to be of the moment. 
Um, but the challenges of telling the stories are very different. And I would say that reporting a story in the present um, is is easier. I mean, it just is it, mm-hmm. in terms of the time, because I really want the stories to have an immediacy in the way they're told. And if you're dealing with archival information, that process of of constructing a narrative is just time consuming. Just to give a small example, you're reading a document and you suddenly say, you know, the investigator showed up on the stoop of somebody's house. And then you say, wait a second, did they have a stoop? <laughs> right. And then you go try to find pictures. And then, you mm-hmm. say, well, and then if you can't find a picture, you say, well, I, they don't have a stoop. I better rewrite that sentence and say they showed up outside the door. <laughs> and yeah. you go through this kind of interrogation. Every sentence gets interrogated where if it's living, you know, I can write the scene and then just call up the person and say, I just want to make sure, did you have a stoop? Mm-hmm. <laughs> and and that could take me two minutes where the archival process of, of trying to be sure that I'm, you know, being fastidious could take me weeks. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so it's just a very, a much slower process. I will say there are certain advantages to historical stuff, though, because you have the benefit of, of hindsight, you have the benefit of more perspective. And I think in some ways you're freer to tell the story because, you know, it, no matter how much you when you write about living people and you deal with them, you, you, people always talk about political bias in stories. Mm-hmm. And I always kind of laugh because I think you can, you know, political bias is something that's really pretty easy to, you know, overcome as long as you're kind of being honest with yourself in, in telling a story. Um, what's more difficult is what I call personal bias which mm-hmm. is that you get to know people. Yeah. <laughs> um, and uh, even when they're really villainous individuals, <laughs> you've spent a lot of time with them. And it's, it can be a difficult process to be entirely uh, frank. Um, where with non-living people, you can be, it's almost, you know, the, it's a little bit easier to be blunt in a way. <laughs> right. And you don't have to worry about them bullshitting you. Yes, you don't have to worry about bullshitting and spinning. And mm-hmm. there is a there is a certain freedom to... To to just there is a freedom in the way one accesses the information, um, and a more honesty, a kind of a more bluntness about it. Like if someone is just a downright racist, and you just see the racism in their text, and, mm-hmm. you know, you just you just come out and say it, and you you know you could just you're very direct. Right. Um, and uh, where if you're interviewing someone and they're giving you a spin, and it just it doesn't mean you're not as honest, but it just it's just a different. It just adds a different challenge. So I, I yeah. guess the answer to your question both have both their 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 challenges, um, and 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 some things are easier and some things are harder. Right. I mean, speaking of personal bias, like even in film criticism, people are always like, "Oh, you know, they're they're getting paid. That's why they didn't like this movie or that movie." And I'm always like, "All all they really have to do is invite the critic to the party." And automatic, <laughs> like automatically, like they're gonna get a nice review just because they they like saw that person. That's that's really like all it takes. Yeah. So yeah. No, I mean, I think I always say to people that is the hardest thing. Uh, that's the bias. It's the hardest one to overcome, and mm-hmm. that's to be because if, especially if you spend months with somebody, um, and it's very and it can be very difficult, especially when you're exposing something about somebody who you yeah. spend time with. Um, and you know, it's just not a very comfortable process. It doesn't mean you don't do it and you have to, you know, be unflinching, but you know, it's a, it's its own challenge. Right. Um, so this story, it takes place, uh, like at the end of world war one and then sort of going to the twenties and thirties. Um, 
It seems like some of the darkest chapters of, of racism, not just like in the U.S., but all over the world, happened in between the First and Second World Wars. Like, do you, what, what do you think was going on during that time period? Do you think it was special in any way that it was that people were able to easily dehumanize each other at that point in time? Yeah, that's a really good question, and I would want to give a thoughtful answer about that, because I don't know if I know the answer to that. Mm -hmm. I tend to think human nature has been fairly unchanged over centuries, both the good and the bad. This is just, again, a general hypothesis without yet getting to a specific question. Right. You know, that both the grace and the savageness of the human heart is kind of unchanged, but what has changed is certainly societal forces, but most of all technology. And so certainly one of the things that made the prejudice so destructive uh, in that period of the 20th century was the fusing of it with technology. And so mm -hmm. Hitler has the capacity to exterminate, um, you know, on a mass scale, uh, millions. And on the case of the Osage murders, um, you know, there are the means of uh, both, you know, gunfire, uh, there's a bombing, uh, poisonings are widespread and very devious ways to cover up crimes. Now, certainly some of these things like poisonings go back further back in history, but but um, you have certain means. But um, and there certainly was I mean, there are certainly periods of, of you know, deep prejudice, but I don't know if I know the answer, if I have enough breadth of history to know, I mean, because you certainly have slavery in the United mm -hmm. States going back, and you have certainly the earlier clash between settlers and Native Americans, that mm -hmm. is brutal. I mean, what's striking, though, is that these forces are still playing out in the modern era, and not that long ago, and in many ways is the level of destruction, uh, certainly thinking of World War II. To mm -hmm. um, Hitler and Stalin are just the the numbers of deaths are just unbelievable. Right, um, and you you were talking about not being bound by timely pegs to storytelling, but I was sort of struck by this story being about the FBI coming into police local law enforcement, and then and then now Jeff Sessions like his first thing he said he wanted to do was to scale back federal policing of local police and he wrote that it's not the responsibility of the federal government to manage non-federal law enforcement agencies um do you think like this book speaks to why that might be necessary uh how much relevance do you think that it has right now yeah well i think a couple of things i mean i think you know one of the things that i was shocked about because i am in many ways a generalist when i i tend to never really want to write about exactly the same thing again. So mm -hmm. part of the process of when I get into looking for stories is I don't want to write the same story again. Um, I didn't want to just do another adventure tale uh, for a book. I wanted to find something different that would have its own challenges and rewards. And one of the things that I was really shocked about was just how lawless um, this country was back in the early 20th century to a kind of surprising scale how poorly trained so much of law enforcement was, and also just how widespread corruption and prejudice was. Um, it was very easy for the powerful to tilt the scales of justice. Locally, in a place like uh, the frontier, this kind of remnant of the frontier, um, you know, it, the powerful were, were able to really tilt the scales of justice. And there was so much corruption, just to give an example, the 
the Oklahoma governor at one point sent in its top state investigator to investigate the Osage murders. And within, you know, a few weeks, he's seen carousing with criminals. He's caught taking a bribe Mm -hmm. uh, for uh, he's been tried and convicted of taking a bribe. Um, And within a few months, he's pardoned by the governor. Um, and he walks out of prison and he goes, commits murder. <laughs> yeah. um, and, just, and this was the top state investigator. So just uh, that's just a snapshot. I mean, this, <laughs> this is just one illustrative story, but there are many like this. And um, and I think one of the things, and I think with we're seeing it with right now, not just with the local policing and, um, you know, making sure that there are kind of uh, reforms and, um, you know, if there are a violation of civil liberties, these issues are addressed. Um, the need kind of for checks and balances. Um, but the the most important theme that I kind of came across from the book back then, which I think is still so resonant today, which is the, how important it is that we be a country of laws. Mm-hmm. And, and that... And also realizing how fragile that is. You know, I always just kind of assume, you know, these institutions were much stronger than they were. And you realize that less than a century ago, these institutions were so weak. And you see the system really being tested now in many ways. And, you know, will the system be strong enough? Are the institutions strong enough? Now, I don't know, you know, enough about what Trump did yet. But, <laughs> you know, if he did obstruct justice, are the institutions strong enough to, to deal with that? And, and, and that's why it's a very unnerving time. And, and I do think that is a really deeply resonant theme from the book and that nobody is above the law um, because these crimes went on for years because of prejudice and because the powerful were able to tilt the scales of justice. And um, that was one of the things I just took away with and that this wasn't that long ago. And it's been a kind of, you know, we think of everything as just kind of a line of inevitable progress. And the, and the line of progress of building these institutions has been, you know, two steps forward, a step back, right. steps forward, step back. It's not been, you know, uh, you know, and again, I'm not an expert on on, on um, the civil rights, but, you you know, it's just it's, a, it's the arc of justice has been long and still goes on. And I'm certainly more familiar with this case that I wrote about with the with the Osage Indians, and you, and you know you saw it with the FBI with Hoover that this case in any ways instituted certain professionalism in law enforcement that was really important and created certain standards and created the use of scientific detection. On the other hand, Hoover used this case to kind of mythologize himself and then to use his power often to corrupt the system of justice. Right. And so both the both the positive and the negative. And so, you know, we just assume that these institutions are strong, and, and hopefully they are, but one of the things the story tells you is that there really is a struggle behind making these institutions work. They can't be taken for granted. And it wasn't that long ago where it was very possible for somebody to, you know, to basically exterminate you know, a people mm-hmm. um, and a genocidal crime, and we're able to get away with it uh, for uh, years um, because of because the legal system was not able to address these these injustices. Right. And one of my other questions was about J. Edgar Her- J. Edgar Hoover and um, sort of having him as a background character in the story. Uh, like, how much did you have to resist the temptation to sort of go down? 
that rabbit hole and and like were there any other interesting side narratives that uh, that you found really interesting but you couldn't really include because they weren't uh part of the central narrative yeah i mean what's interesting is you know i wanted this story you know whenever you do the other challenge about writing about history and when you're doing narrative history is you do a ton of research um and then you have to kind of winnow out the research because you want to have all the information so that you can convincingly and authoritatively describe what's happening, but and enough backstory so that it, there's context that makes sense. Mm-hmm. But you're not going to write a thousand-page digression um, <laughs> right. about about the bureau or about Hoover. Um, and for me, one of the interesting things was just to be able to see Hoover in this very early formative stage of his career, um, and you could see all the kind of ingredients of his of his character playing out that would obviously have, um, um, you know, larger import. I mean, what's interesting in this case is the Bureau initially badly bungles the investigation into Osage murders. They don't make any arrests for two years and they get this informant out of jail, uh, a guy named Blackie who, you know, they want to use as an informant instead he robs a bank, kills a police officer. (laughs) And so Hoover is afraid of a scandal. And it's what's, what's hard to believe in what's, What's interesting to see is, you know, we only know Hoover as this autocratic bureaucrat, which he would certainly become. But in this moment, there was an insecurity to his power, and he was trying to cement his power. He'd just become director in 1924 at the age of 29. And so to see some of that insecurity, see the fear of scandal threatening him. Um, and he kind of takes on this case um, partly out of out of, you know, unwanted necessity. Um, mm-hmm. He had tried to kind of dump the case back on the states because he couldn't solve the case, and he thought, oh, there'll be criticism. And then there's the scandal with Blackie, and he thinks, oh my gosh, I better get my men out there to do something. Um, and so you see kind of what motivates him, and, and, and I should say you see some of the lawmen um, who I thought, you know, especially this person I read about, Tom White, who ends up leading the undercover operation, who has a real kind of quiet goodness to him. Yeah. Um, there were certainly elements about the Bureau that I tried to hint at without going into them, knowing the reader would have a certain knowledge about them. But, you know, the fact that, you know, Hoover would later, you know, in the 70s and, you know, later infiltrate the um, the, the American Indian movement. And so, you know, you just see again, which I'm getting back to that question of kind of steps forward and steps back. Um, and so you could see the kind of corruption of that power. And and you could see as, as an older man, the way he kind of treats uh, Tom White, the investigator at the end of his life by never kind of acknowledging, mm-hmm. giving any credit to him, kind of, you know, not being bothered by him. Um, I thought sometimes it was oddly enough in those very small human moments that I I got a better sense of Hoover, and I thought you could kind of reveal Hoover. Um, I thought the way he treated Tom White um, in his letters and communications with him towards the end of White's life, I thought was very revealing. Um, There were other elements that I didn't get into that were digressions that weren't so much about the Bureau, but um, uh, get to this issue of prejudice at the time. Um, You know, one of the things I kind of stumbled upon, which I also didn't know about, was the Tulsa race riots in the Mm -hmm. 1920s. I think it was 1921, if my memory serves me, but um, it was around the same time, might have been a little bit earlier. And, um, and, and you know, this was just one of the worst race riots in American history. And it was another uh, element that really wasn't well covered. And I kind of came across it because one of the private eyes who ends up working on the Osage murder cases, who is dubious 
been suspected of being corrupt, had actually been a lawman during the race riots and was kind of disgraced for his handling of them. And so I kind of went down a hole, and then it didn't really, you know, there wasn't really a place for it in the book. But I, as I was doing that research, I thought, well, that could be another book. <laughs> I mean, you could have done like an entire history of just the private eye. Like, I mean, that was yeah. that was that felt very new. Just understanding uh, how that subculture worked at that point and how widespread it was. Yes, yes. I, I had not known that. You know, it's funny because I'd always read about the private eye more as kind of this figure in literature and, you know, just kind of assumed that the prevalence was partly just because they were kind of cool and, you know, <laughs> there was kind of a, a kind the of a. Cops a that don't play quality. by the rules. Yes, exactly. <laughs> but that, that it really also was a byproduct of the lawlessness that because citizens couldn't count on professional law enforcement, they often turned to private eyes if you had the means. Um, of course, many of these private eyes turned out to have criminal backgrounds and have, um, you know, be tempted by the highest bidder and, uh, and have some, some of the similar problems, which is why they eventually, while still kind of a figure in literature or myth, are no longer the dominant forces they once were in society. Mm-hmm. Um, all right. So I'll, last question before I let you go. Um, sure. So you searched through the Texas archives to research a lot of this book and you did uh, freedom of information requests. Uh, is there going to be a time like when my sort of Google generation has to go back and like relearn some of these research skills? Like, are you doing <laughs> are you doing anything to try and pass down these sort of skills to the <laughs> next generation of writers? You know, I know. But, you know, the funny it's funny. um you know, I, I for me, it's all a little bit new. I mean, I think the biggest thing is just the time and the shoe leather. I mean, I think, you know, making the journey to the archives because they're not always well cataloged. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, I really think it, some of it is just the doing. I mean, it's, I mean, sometimes it's finding, you know, I'll use the Internet sometimes to figure out maybe where um, there might be materials in archives, but the process of kind of going to the archives and just literally spending the time, I mean, I, I don't know if there's really any secret. I mean, it's really, part of it is just bearing both the cost of the trip and then the tediousness of it. Because, for example, in the Fort Worth archives where I spent weeks and weeks pulling our uh, materials, you know, so many days I would just pull records that really weren't relevant. I mean, I hope they might be. Uh-huh. And then one day you'll pull a file and there will be the secret grand jury testimony uh, for many of those stage murder cases that, to the best of my knowledge, had not been um, made public before. And it was kind of just like slipped into a folder. It wasn't even cataloged. And what's so revealing about that kind of testimony is because unlike many of the trial uh, testimony, where people will just say yes or no in grand jury testimony, they'll actually give long, detailed answers, and you can actually hear their voices and get a real sense of who they are. Um, and then you might be going along too, and um, you know, one of the things I describe in the in the in the book that was very revealing was this kind of ledger-like document. Um, it's a little hard to explain what it was, but it was essentially the Osage had guardians, which was a reflection of the prejudice at the time. The U.S. government required many Osage um, to have white guardians manage their fortunes. This was a very racist system, um, mm-hmm. and it also led to a kind of a criminal enterprise where many guardians went to money. But in any case, I was pulling records. I wanted to just check whether uh, a guardian, the name of a guardian for a certain Osage, and I pulled the guardian records, and I found this booklet that covered a few years, and all it basically had was the name of the guardian with what they would refer to as the ward, the Osage ward that they were in charge of, and I put that in quotes. Um, and 
I was just looking at it, and I noticed that there was a guardian. I noticed they had five Osage under them. And if the Osage had died, somebody had just scribbled the word dead next to the name. <laughs> and I was looking at this. I noticed this one guardian had five Osage, and I noticed the word dead, 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 written five times. Then I'd go back down. I'd look and see some other guardians' names, and I might see somebody with ten, ten wards. Um, and then they had 10 Osage who they oversaw their fortunes, and then five of them had the word dead next to them, and this defied any natural death rate. Um, yeah. It doesn't say. Some of these deaths may have been of natural causes. I want to be careful about that. But when I looked into some of the deaths, they certainly raised suspicions. There were complaints by witnesses about possible poisonings or, or the money being swindled, and you begin to realize kind of looking at this document that you're looking at the kind of hints of a systematic murder campaign. Mm-hmm. Had you not kind of been there and kind of pulled this document and looked at it, because it's a very forensic document, unless you looked at it and saw that somebody had kind of scribbled in the margins the word dead next to the name, you really you, you wouldn't have had a sense of the breadth of, of the murder. So I think the real secret is, one, coming up with the resources, which is never easy mm-hmm. um, to be able to make these trips because it's so much easier and cheaper if you can do it online. And then the second thing is just spending the time to kind of weed through the records uh, because it can be a very tedious process. All right. Well, very cool. Uh, thank you uh, so much for talking to me. Oh, thank you for uh, doing this. I really appreciate it.